Let's pray one more time, please. God and Father, how thankful we are that you have given us life, and that life is in Jesus Christ. And the good news, the gospel, as we refer to it often, is of him. It's not a system of living. It's not a set of religious principles. The good news is of a savior, a redeemer, a rescuer, a shepherd, a king. How we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are all of this and so much more. And what you have revealed of yourself to us puts us in awe and it causes us to sing. At some moments, it it just washes over our soul and creates a profound silence, a stillness of soul. And we praise you that you are everything you have ever revealed to us. Thank you that your promises are true. That there's not one promise that you've given that has failed to come to pass as you have determined or will. Thank you for the assurance that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. We await the final fulfillment of so many of these promises, and that includes your return, that includes our reward, that includes our complete sanctification when we will be perfect in every way. And, and finally, these bodies that are so prone to sickness and weakness and infirmity will be restored and strengthened, never to be sick or weak or weary again. And more than perfect bodies, we will have perfect souls. Not one trace of sin within us will remain. Never again will we be motivated by our pride or moved by our greed or tempted Uh, to immoral choices but because you will complete that work that you have started we will be perfect thank you for your truth that is alive and powerful and changing us day by day and we ask again according to your promise that you would wash us with the water of this word and prepare us for that day that we will see you Convict our hearts of our sinful thinking, speaking, and acting. Convict our hearts that Jesus is full of grace and forgiveness for us as we confess our sins. And would you move us, uh, move us forward in this life of faith. Comfort those who sorrow this day. Strengthen those who just feel utterly exhausted. Bring peace to those whose minds are a flurry of anxiety and um, fear. Do this and a thousand more things. You are our God, and we are the people of your hand. And thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go back to Romans 12, if you will, please. In verse 1 again, we covered verses 1 and 2 last week, and we'll uh, get into this next paragraph here. So I'm going to read through verse 8. You follow along. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts and minds. We want to look today at those Uh, first few verses in this immediate paragraph we won't get all the way through the details of the gifts that are listed here but we'll we'll get a start toward that and I want you to notice with me first of all that Paul is actually continuing to make an appeal out of the mercies of God but now he touches in verse 3 upon the grace that's been given to him and he's going to move this conversation toward what I would just describe with the two words as right thinking you see right thinking uh, one of my professors that I, God used in a powerful way in my heart through actually a number of courses over a number of years used to say, right thinking about the gospel leads to right living in the gospel. And then there are variations of that that it would say. And Paul's doing the same thing. Because God has been merciful to you, because it's reasonable to suggest or even to instruct you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, because of the grace I've been given As an apostle, he doesn't include that word, but you think of the grace that that Paul had been shown from the moment of his conversion right up to this very point. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, let's pause there for a moment and, and try to dig in a little bit on what Paul is actually saying. To think more highly would have to do with having high thoughts of self, or as one author writes, to consider yourself of great importance. And it would be easy to say, well, he's just talking about pride, isn't he? Actually, there's more to it than just pride. It has to do with an unwarranted uh, opinion of self or accomplishments. And, And the contrasting thought to this is to think with sober judgment and I think this is where it will become a little more apparent that he's not simply talking about a proud estimation of self though that is included now the word for sober has to do with a self-control a wise self-control over one's passions and desires there are two other places where this term is used in the New Testament if you want to turn back to Mark's gospel chapter 5 and just survey uh, the story that's included there it's an interesting usage of it Now, I'm not going to read through the whole story. I'll simply summarize it by saying in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he encountered multiple people who were possessed or oppressed by demons. This is a legendary character, the maniac of Gadara, as he is known out of Matthew's account. And Mark 5 records the account where Jesus came into a particular region, and this man who was actually controlled by demons confronts him. It's a beautiful story because Christ confronts those powerful uh, forces, expels them from the man, and then you come to verse 15 where it says, they came to Jesus, that is people who were uh, living in that area, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. How many demons possessed him? We don't know. Sitting there, clothed, 
and in his right mind, or we could even say his sober mind, and they were afraid. Now, here's the contrast I want to draw, but, and I think this is part of the point that Paul is making. The man wasn't intoxicated with alcohol, but we could say, in a sense, he had been intoxicated by demon spirits. They had absolute control of him. So he would do things and say things that would not be sober. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm using some terms in a way we don't typically use them, but I want to help you see the point that Paul is making. And prior to Jesus' healing, the man was under the control of other forces. Peter uses this term in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, we as believers are supposed to be controlled not by our own ambitions, our own ideas, our pride. We're to be controlled by something else. Now, in the context of Romans 12, the controlling influence, we, we would be right in saying it's God or the Holy Spirit because we're supposed to be filled with him, but I think in the context, he's actually saying, you need to be controlled by this gospel of mercy, this amazing reality that God has been merciful to you, that even while you were dead in your sins, Christ died for you, that he's gifted you righteousness. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. He just gave it to you as a free gift because of all that Christ is. So rather than being intoxicated with self, we're to be under the control of mercy. That's what is to be the consuming influence in us. So we think with sober judgment, it, just, it doesn't mean that you've got to be all serious all the time. No, it's just like, I'm amazed at what God has done for me, the, the mercies uh, of verse one that Paul alludes to, the grace, verse three, that he alludes to that's been given to me. I, I'm so filled with this work of God. I'm controlled by that. So there is a personal assessment that flows out of this. So we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we think with a sober judgment, a grace-informed mercy-informed judgment, if you will. From time to time, I, I actually like to consult Eugene Peterson's The Message. You need to know, and I would never say don't use it, but you just need to know what you're using. The Message is actually a paraphrase of the Bible. Eugene Peterson was a very skilled pastor and theologian, and over the years of his life and ministry, he actually took time to to do kind of his own translation of the Bible, but then even put it into a paraphrase. So I, I think there, there's a helpful place for it. I would just be careful that you remember what the message is. But with respect to this particular passage, he paraphrases the heart of what Paul is saying here with these words. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us not by what we are or what we do for him. So the mercies of God become the controlling influence. Now back to the, the scripture itself, and as, as Paul continues to build this, the next phrase he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What is this measure of faith? Does some get big measures and some get little measures? There are some, there are some scholars and, and students of God's word who, thinks, who think that's what, God, that's what Paul is indicating. Um, that God has given different portions of faith. Um, but th there are some challenges with that particular interpretation of this passage. I'm inclined to believe, as others, that this actually refers to, uh, as uh, one of the authors I, I looked at this week, I thought very 
succinctly summarized. This refers to saving faith in Christ crucified. And that only this gospel of the cross, indeed only Christ himself, in whom God's judgment and mercy are revealed, can enable us to measure ourselves soberly. Some do have great faith, some have small faith, some, all of us have a growing faith, but I don't think that is Paul's point. He's saying you need to think soberly according to the faith, the gospel. And right thinking about the faith or the gospel leads us to a right perspective on ourselves. Nobody here earned the position with God. God doesn't like some people better than others you know, because they're super spiritual and it's of grace. The question for each of us to wrestle with this morning is simply do we think with this kind of sober judgment of ourselves? Is, is the mercy of God as you've experienced it, the grace of God even as he's revealed it in a book like Romans, is, is that the controlling influence in your heart? One of the ways to measure this might be to ask a question, well, how often am I irritated or frustrated or offended or wounded by the things that other people do and say? And if you're perpetually in that position, it might be an evidence that you have not set your heart fully on the mercy and grace of God, but you're kind of wrapped up in yourself at this moment. Well, nobody seems to care about what I think. Nobody seems to appreciate my opinions. And you develop a bit of a martyr's complex because you've actually... You've actually unplugged yourself from God's gospel of mercy and grace. It could be that you are easily irritated or wounded because you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It could be that you are actually controlled by your ideas and notions to the extent that, in a sense, you're intoxicated. And so you're, in an odd way, at the mercy of your notions and ideas. And truth is, if you would spend less time thinking about yourself and let your heart just dive in to the gospel, there would be a shift. And some of those irritations and frustrations and wounds and offenses that just always seem to be there would, would be absorbed into the mercy of God. Look at the next portion. He says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Well, here's a right perspective, particularly on the body. First of all, he, he's speaking of a unity here, doesn't he? He employs a simple, but it's a spectacular metaphor to illustrate the greater spiritual point. Consider the human body. Look at verse 4, for as in one body we have many members. And that quickly brings us to a a second thought. There is a unity, but there's a dependence designed by Christ with respect to this body. Look at the next phrase. The members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So he's using something we all know well. We might not be expert in it. Uh, You might not have done well and, you know, you're your high school biology class or a college anatomy class, but you know enough of what he's talking about here. So when he uses the word members, he's not speaking of a club or organization. Even church membership is is not that kind of membership. We use the word membership uh, because it flows out of this very concept. There's a body of believers. Why wouldn't you want to be, you know, vitally, personally, formally connected to the body 
of Christ. Think about your physical body for just a moment. This is a marvel to me. You have one body, and I'm curious. I, I didn't have time to consult with experts that I know, but there are different reports of how many systems, but depending on how you organize them, there are at least 10 and maybe as many as 12 systems, and that would be you know, everything from like your muscular or nervous system or your cardiovascular. There's a whole long list, but 10 to 12 is the range that I saw. 78 organs that are, are vital to you, designed and created by God for your benefit and blessing. 206 bones, uh, more than 600 muscles, and trillions of cells. Can I just put in another plug? Like, there's no way this happened by chance. There's a powerful God and creator behind it who wisely, creatively, sovereignly brought it all together. Did any of you wake up this morning thinking about your kidneys? I don't see any hands going up. And the only ones who were are people who probably have a kidney issue that requires, and we would, I don't minimize that at all. But most of us didn't because you kind of take that member for granted. You've never even actively thought, please work today, please work today. Work, work, work. Do your thing, kidneys. This is, this is amazing. The average adult kidney weighs about five ounces, maybe a little more. It's the size of a fist. Your body's five liters of blood flow through your kidneys 36 times a day. This means that every day, 180 liters of blood, almost 50 gallons of blood are filtered by your kidneys. And in those kidneys, there are millions of filtering units called nephrons. Did you know that? Did you give thanks this morning for your nephrons? It's just so arrogant and presumptuous that you and I are not mindful of this vital little organ. And if the nephrons were stretched out from end to end, they would be about five miles long. Add that to the tennis court analogy from a couple weeks ago, those of you who are here, when we considered another part of our body that if all those little folds and wrinkles were ironed out, it'd be the size of a tennis court. I mean, you are marvelously created, marvelously fashioned. And after the blood is cleansed, it returns to the body through, your, through the renal veins, and there are other things that happen there that don't need to be mentioned here at church. But here's another little, another little factoid. You know, if a child is born without a kidney, the other one will grow and weigh the same as two kidneys together. What a marvel. But it's easy to overlook that really important member because it's out of sight as long as most of us can remember, it's been doing what it was designed by God to do, created by God to do, but every one of us is dependent upon that, and you're in serious trouble if that system and that particular organ shuts down today. The body suffers. And, and it would be easier to say, but there are 77 other organs. Can't we get along without that? Nope. There's a dependence designed by Christ, and when you have a right understanding of who God is and what he has done through Christ, the mercy, the grace that he has poured out upon you, the righteousness that he has credited to you, and the righteousness that he calls you to live in, it changes your understanding of this world and the people around you. If you were to look around at this moment, the people seated next to you, in front of you, behind you, you're, you're so obedient. Elijah, I just appreciate that willingness to do immediately what I suggest. But we, ne- we need to look at one another with a new set of eyes. First of all, with the eyes that say, I'm in awe 
of what God has done. Look at this body. And second of all, to look with eyes that, that see beyond some of the surface issues or challenges or imperfections and, and say, oh, Lord, I'm not sure I fully understand this member, but we can't function without her. We would be incomplete without him. Every one of us is dependent upon the other members. Now, the third thought here is diversity. There's beautiful variety. Many members, uh, he says, and, and uses that term many a couple of times here. And so we give God thanks for this. There, there's, there's a right perspective on the body that flows out of a right understanding of who God is and what he has done. Now, that moves us finally, and this is where we'll just begin this portion. There's a right motive for service in particular. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Um, wait a second. What, Paul, what are you saying? Well, he's introducing the idea that there are not just different members, but there are actually a variety of gifts. He doesn't go into as much detail here as he does in other places like 1 Corinthians, but, but there is a work that the Holy Spirit in particular does where he gifts each individual. And, and these are grace gifts. Again, you don't go to school for gifting. No, the Holy Spirit sovereignly assigns to individuals gifts that will benefit the entire body. And so in the same way that God's grace is common to all, God's gifts are common to all, but we, all, we don't all get the same set, so the gifts are unique to the individuals, but those gifts are given for the common benefit. We don't have time to really dig into 1 Corinthians 14 today. Uh, we'll save that. Uh, for next week, maybe. Um, but it, it would be a great help for you if you've not read that ever or recently to go there and see how he talks about the use of gifts. And he says things like, he's using one gift as an example, but it's given for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of the church. It's not just about you or me. And so as these gifts are exercised, it strengthens the church, builds it up, it encourages, it consoles, um, it gives strength and vitality. It's quite a remarkable thing. Just like the human body is designed by God to, to bless itself, you want to put it that way, to heal itself, uh, to provide the necessary nutrition and, and filter out all the bad stuff, well, the, the, so is the church body. Quite remarkable. So what Paul is doing here, though, is to say, first of all, there's a diversity of those gifts, but then look at the command, and this is where we're gonna pause today. But he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Seems pretty simple and straightforward, doesn't it? Well, how would you use them? Well, right thinking in the gospel leads to right living out, or in, right thinking about the gospel leads to right living in the gospel. No, you would never use your gift for self-promotion or self-fulfillment. That would be a demonstration of, of intoxicated thinking, not sober thinking. No, you would use it for the building up and benefit of the body. You know what's so neat to me is to watch the Spirit of God just transform people who by nature are shy or introverted or not risk takers, but when the Spirit gives them in particular ways, they start doing stuff that they would never do naturally. Their hearts are moved with compassion, and there's a sampling of the gifts that are given here, and someone is gifted uh, in, in mercy, and they, they bring blessing and benefit and comfort and consolation to those who have significant needs or someone that you would look at and say, you know, that, 
that person is not naturally a leader, but like in this particular situation, there's like this vision and zeal that emerges. That is amazing. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit at work. So the list of seven, as we'll dig into it a little more in the coming weeks, is a sampling, I think, of probably hundreds of gifts that the Spirit of God gives. And sometimes people say, well, how do I, how do I know what my gift is? You know the best way to find your gift? is first of all just to submit yourself to the Lord and then as you see needs arise in the context of the body of Christ, you go meet the need. And if you're really bad at it, someone will come along and say, oh, you know, brother, thank you for that, but I don't see that this is really your area of gifting. But typically what happens is you jump in and serve and somebody says, thank you, that was such a blessing. And the Spirit affirms that in your heart and you say, man, I, you know, those needs have been around for a long time, I just haven't seen them. And as you, as you tune in to the body, the life of the body and what's taking place and the Spirit of God is controlling you and you're thinking through the gospel and, and then living out of the gospel, you're gonna be gifted at the right moment at the right time for, the, for whatever situation it is. There's so much more we could say there and I'm already way off script, so let me bring it back. I think this is a perfect passage for us to transition to the Lord's table because Paul is reminding us that in the body of Christ, There is this beautiful unity and diversity, and the unity, I think, is nowhere practiced more clearly or more beautifully than the Lord's table. I do want to ask you to turn back to 1 Corinthians 11 with me now. Um, Keep going toward the back of your Bible. It's just a few pages over. Again, if you're using a church Bible, this is page 958, so we're not far beyond the letter to the Romans, but this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We were, you say, didn't you read a Corinthian letter earlier? Yep, that was the second letter. That's what I read in conjunction with the offering. But in chapter 11, he's actually correcting a, a terrible misunderstanding and then consequently a terrible practice that had emerged. And the Corinthians had turned the Lord's table into this really ugly church potluck, if I can put it in modern terms. You had rich people showing up with extravagant meals prepared not even thinking about sharing their abundance with the poor working class. And many of the poor working class apparently couldn't even get there at the time that the Lord's Supper was starting, probably because many of them had to work the whole day, so they came later, and the time, by the time they arrived, there's nothing left, and they, I mean, they, they might bring crumbs. But what should have been this beautiful spiritual feast of, of common seating, of shared joy, because we share the same grace and mercy of God, had really become an ugly thing. And Paul just stands up through this letter in the middle of it and goes, it's actually not the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that he tells them that they need to do uh, in correction of that, uh, and I want to begin reading in verse 23, is to remember how the Lord initially gave it and what he said. And I'm going to read an extended portion here before we actually come to the Lord's table, but I want you to see how it fits into this larger uh, narrative that the Spirit of God has been laying down before us. So he says in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now Paul speaks again, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Now pause for a moment, think about some of the historical context I gave you. If they've turned it into this really ugly you know, church potluck, how can the Lord's life and death and resurrection be seen in that? And that's a question we ought to ask ourselves. And the answer is it can't be seen. But Paul is correcting that saying, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you actually proclaim the Lord's death. That is central to what we are doing today. Now, look at verse 27. Whoever, who, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, there have been a lot of you know, discussions as to what what that has reference to, but I, I'm firmly persuaded that in context when it says if you eat and drink without consideration of the body, he's talking primarily about the body of Christ. I don't think he's saying if you take that you know, little, little piece of unleavened bread as we will take here today, uh, you know, and you're not thinking about the body of Christ, you're taking an unworthy manner. I, I think that's one way you could do it, but I think the greater context is they're coming together for what they call the Lord's table or communion, and they have no care or consideration for the body that they're part of. And to take this bread and this cup without a sense of humble awe, first of what the Lord has done in dying for us, and then what he's done to bring us together, is to take it unworthily. And then he says in verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God has actually brought physical discipline upon this church because they become so careless at this precious table. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So even God's discipline is a view with correcting us and bringing us back into right relationship with him. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. That's the real practical application for Corinth at that moment. And, and, and do you see how the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly his death on the cross, is front and center, and the death that Jesus died for us is the corrective to such arrogant, indifferent, careless behavior toward the body. And you know, if some of you aren't in right relationship with a spouse or a child or a roommate or a coworker or a member of this church today, you know the remedy for that? It's not for them to get their act together and suddenly agree with you, whatever's created the disagreement. It's for you to bow at the foot of the cross and say, Lord Jesus, make your death real to me again. Let me experience the flood of mercy and grace that flowed from Calvary because I deserve to be in hell, but I'm not there at this moment. Take me to the cross that first I may see you and then as I get a right perspective on who you are and all that you've done, correct my perspective on my dear brother or sister or husband or wife or coworker or neighbor. Oh God, let the powerful work of Christ create in me this sense of open heart and open arms. Wait for one another. You can never get away from the cross. But who wants to? And so the Lord invites us to come again with these powerful symbols. 